live in one of the most religiously observant countries in the world. Many working class communities and communities of color are rooted in religious traditions. Yet for over 40 years, the religious right has focused much of its energy on seizing control of religious narratives and institutions. This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon. Welcome. Uh, Folks are just coming in. We're going to get going in just a few moments. Uh, Exciting to, excited rather to have a conversation with uh, Bhaskar Zankara uh, and and myself. Um, I think it's a really timely uh, conversation. Uh, The theme is taking heart in a heartless world. Uh, So we're going to, uh, which is an intentional allusion to uh, Marx often uh, out of context quoted remarks uh, on, on the theme. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll um, touch on that a bit and cover uh, some other ground. Uh, and while folks are hopping in, just wanna uh, set the stage a bit. Um, this is our third conversation in our monthly series on religion and socialism um, with uh, DSA's Religion and Socialism Working Group. Uh, again, honored to be in conversation with uh, Bhaskar Sankara, the uh, founding publisher and editor of Jacobin Magazine, uh, which I believe is celebrating 10 years this year. Is that right? Yeah, we just hit 10 years about about a, a week ago. So, yeah, it's been it's been a great 10 years. I'm grateful for all the help of people in and around uh, DSA. Um, I think Maxine uh, Phillips, who's, who's in attendance, uh, was, was uh, an early person I, I reached out to and was in contact when I was just, just launching it. So there was a lot of people like that. Maxine, Joe Swartz, like uh, Maria. Uh, a lot of people around DSA were very supportive um, early on. So I'm, I'm you know, excited I've made it this far. Wonderful news. Uh, it, it would not be the most uh, comradely thing to not uh, celebrate such a wonderful uh, milestone. So certainly wanted to begin there. Uh, I'll say a few words about uh, DSA and religious socialism, uh, and then we'll just uh, dive right on uh, into it. Uh, for those who um, may be new, uh, as well as those who may not be so new to uh, DSA's religious socialism group, uh, maybe DSA generally, uh, our core organizing belief is that uh, working people should govern the economy and society democratically to meet human needs, uh, to have autonomy and agency flourish, uh, as opposed uh, to having the economy be run on the basis of profit for a few. Uh, DSA is organized through uh, campus and community-based chapters uh, whose members engage in everything from legislative to direct action, uh, fighting for non-reformist reforms that uh, empower working people. Uh, a brief word about the religious socialism uh, piece. Uh, so religious socialism within what's now DSA uh, has really been inspired by a vibrant tradition of folks uh, committed to building uh, a new society, uh, an emancipatory society, in a way that's inspired uh, by their faith. Um, we're at a unique moment, I think, where uh, religious folks, um, as is, is often the case, are working alongside unions uh, within um, 
to things like the Poor People's Campaign, other worker justice efforts. Some of these uh, efforts are explicitly anti-capitalist and socialist in orientation. Um, others are, are not necessarily that, uh, but are nonetheless doing great uh, progressive work. Uh, but we also want to have the conversation in good faith because they are versions of religion which uh, justify the reproduction of inequality, justify uh, extractive, uh, exploitative economic practices, uh, and that uh, sometimes go so far as to argue sincerely, uh, but mistakenly, that you can use uh, the electoral cycle and a kind of garden variety democratic liberalism uh, to tame the business cycle of capitalism and you know the market's excesses. So there's this kind of paradoxical element, a, a dialectic to religious engagement with politics generally and socialism, I think in particular, that defies um, easy categorization. Uh, so again, uh, Oscar, uh, excited to be in conversation with you. I, I believe we met many moons ago. I'm not sure if you recall it. It was at like a versus, a verso, not a versus, that's on Instagram, a verso event. Do, do you recall that? Yeah, I think like 2016, 2017 or something like that. I think in that that range. Yes, I, I do recall. Yeah, so so good to be uh, together again. Let's let's hop right on into it. Um, so we'll we'll start with a, uh, a dear brother and, and Karl Marx, whose quote inspires tonight's uh, theme. Uh, so there's a uh, a text from Marx where he's kind of riffing on Hegel, uh, and he talks about how religion is the sign of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world. Uh, the soul of soulless conditions, it's the opium of the people, right? Uh, we, we often talk about the opium of the people part, but the sigh of the oppressed creature and the heart of the heartless world piece uh, doesn't always get airtime. And so I, I think for some, this quote suggests that religion is inherently a distraction from getting at the root causes of suffering, exploitation, all the rest. And I think this is an understandable, though lamentable position, I, I'd say, in some parts of the left. Um, but there's also a case that could be made that um, Marx and his interpreters give us reason to kind of take heart in a heartless world. And, and what I mean by that is religion is potentially, not necessarily, but potentially a constructive force for advancing a socialist narrative, organizing electoral work. Uh, and so I want to, to turn the question to you, uh, Bosker. Uh, what's your assessment of Marx's legacy, both in his own writing and in among his interpreters on how religion might intersect with socialism. Well, I definitely have always taken the same argument as you, which is obviously just let's focus on uh, this um, Marx, the opiate of the the people line always is is thrown out there and it makes it seem like religion is a con. I mean, that's the way we were taught that Marx line in like a high school history class or something. I remember coming across it before I was really uh, politicized. And obviously in full context, it, it takes on more, um, more, more nuance. So he's not necessarily against religion itself, but I would say he does think it's a symptom. And I think this gets to a deeper problem. I mean, and those of you who, who know me within DSA knows that I'm, if anything, excessively orthodox in my, in my defense of, of, um, of, of Marx and, and a certain variety of, of, of Marxism. But I think this gets to a problem that exists in some of Marx's thought, which is that by rightly foregrounding uh, the contradiction of, of class and the contradictions rooted in capitalism, mm -hmm. I think 
he is he always tended to envision a post-political world. So in other words, when we think about uh, within Marxist thought in his brief just sketches on socialism, him talking about the state being able to wither away, him talking about full communism, he's thinking about a world without contradictions. And in a way, sorry, I'll loop back to the point, but in a way, um, when he's talking about a world without contradictions, it's not completely utopian because his argument is that mass material abundance solves problems. So it's not like our consciousness because of uh, socialism or communism, you know, completely changes. No, there's such mass abundance that we change the way we relate to each other and to production. So Michael Harrington at the end of socialism has a great, great passage where he talks about uh, the desert and how water is treated. So in desert societies, marriages are brokered over water, people fight wars over water. You know, water is the most, most sacred, most important thing ever. So you can imagine somebody being taken from that society and that's all they know and that's what they know of water and they, they think it's basically imbued in human nature, this, this relationship to water, and take them to contemporary Brooklyn on a hot summer day when, 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 a, when someone opens up a fire hydrant for, for kids and, and to, to cool down or whatever else, right? Like that, they would just have their minds blown or, or to see a, uh, a water fountain, a public water fountain that no one is charging for. Um, so I think that's what Marx is getting at when he's talking about how the end of capitalism, the creation of abundance would get rid of a lot of contradictions. But I, I think that there's a permanence to religion, just like there's a permanence to politics, because religion solves problems or at least speaks to something uh, within us um, in all its various forms. It could be a, a more secular philosophical form or whatnot, but it, it speaks to deeper questions of the human condition that politics yep. is not meant to, to solve. And we don't want politics to solve those things, because a lot of those things are actually uh, deeply personal. You know, these are deeply personal philosophical questions. These are about thinking about our place in the universe. Um, and uh, we don't want a totalizing politics. It would, would make religion unnecessary, if that makes sense. Though, obviously, we want a politics where, a world where people maybe have more time for contemplation. So perhaps that means more time for religion. Perhaps that means more time for philosophy. Um, and the very and least for, would make just religious. Are, yeah, exactly. So in, in anyway, yeah. No, I, I think you hit on a number of important things. One, uh, for those who might be interested in a particularly uh, bracing uh, case in this regard, uh, well before Cornell rest quote, um, race matters. Uh, his PhD was on the ethical dimensions of Marxist theory, which I think is a, a powerful um, work because he, he makes a case that uh, doesn't necessarily require a religious belief, but it, it has a kind of ethical melody to it um, because it, it takes a sort of um, appreciation, I think, of Marx's kind of early humanist sort of moves in order to see the bridge between uh, where one might go ethically with Marx, where folks might take Marx from a religious perspective. But wherever one goes, uh, I think there's room to credibly read Marx as um, not necessarily hostile to religion, uh, not necessarily uh, in an instrumental religious way, um, but to see him, and, and I appreciate you pushing on the point a bit, uh, uh, Buster, that uh, he does view religion as a symptom. And I think that's important to highlight because sometimes um, religious uh, engagement with questions of justice and anti-capitalist work doesn't always get at uh, the root causes. So I think that's a particularly powerful point that, that you raised there. Yeah, and I also think though, we, we should say that fundamentally as socialists, our thought is rooted in something moral and ethical. 
And obviously yeah. we, we all, each have to decide how we get to this place. But often, especially those of us from more Marxist tradition, we think of ourselves as scientific socialists. We don't often think about the moral and the ethical. But if we're using the framework of Marxism to identify exploitation, we still need a framework to tell us that exploitation is wrong. And particularly this form of exploitation is wrong. So I think a reasonable person, let's say even a libertarian to reason uh, magazine, I have no doubt these people are against extreme forms of hyper-exploitation, like feudalism, like slavery, like other, other forms. Like they're against yeah. that, but they decide that the wage-labor relationship is not, is not a form of, um, of, of exploitation that should be banned or, or not, you know. But that's, that's, a, that's a normative judgment, and that requires some type of, of, of rooting to say that uh, forms of hierarchy are, should be limited and forms of exploitation and domination are, are social bads that should be, should be limited. And historically, people have gotten that through religious uh, framework. Um, and it might be that obviously because of the, the role that religion has played uh, historically uh, in the negative sense of being tied with state power and with ruling elites, it might be that was that was the way to smuggle in that framework. And it might be that it's less necessary uh, uh, today, that that's the only route that people can get to the, to this, the, the same thing. But, um, but yeah, that's, 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 that's been the root for, for millions and millions of socials, uh, ha, you know, has been through that, that moral and ethical framework. Yeah. You know, I, I often think of A. Philip Randolph as an example in this regard. Um, a. Philip Randolph, um, worked with Chandler Owen. They put out a socialist magazine, The Messenger, got some traction in Harlem. Uh, and A. Philip Randolph um, and a lot of his biographers talk about how, uh, though his own um, position was, was atheism in terms of like his religious belief, uh, he had a deeply sensitive understanding of black Pentecostalism, uh, which then and now in Harlem has, has quite the hearing. Uh, and it made him more effective as an organizer and recruiting folks to, you know, what ultimately becomes uh, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Uh, so I, I think that's an important point to highlight that kind of moral ethical uh, imperative. Um, let, let's, let's, let's switch gears a bit. Um, we all watched uh, a cross between a debate slash food fight of uh, exchange last night. Uh, and you recently wrote, uh, I think, a really compelling article in The Guardian arguing that um, Scranton versus Park Avenue is probably the most uh, effective contrast that the Biden campaign can draw. And if I, if I understand your, your point, I, I think there's something of a juxtaposition that's grounded in class that I think you're getting at there. Uh, could you maybe say a bit more about that? Well, I mean, I, I do think that, um, that right now, obviously, the American public is so polarized in the sense that, you know, Trump has his base of 40%. He's never going to lose that base. Um, he said it himself about that, that disgusting comment in 2016 about how he could shoot someone on, on Fifth Avenue or, or whatever it was, Park Avenue, yep. Fifth Avenue, I think. Fifth and, um, and, and he wouldn't they lose, uh, he, they would still vote for him. Um, and that goes along the flip side, too. I mean, uh, the Democrats could nominate uh, someone on the far left like me or you, you know, and, and, and we would get 40 something, you know, um, uh, percent. So in other words, a lot of the Bernie Sanders campaign was about reaching and tapping into to constituencies that had dropped out of of politics that we either thought it had nothing to offer them because they've, they've seen um, just the impasse of modern uh, politics um, or just felt neither candidate, neither party was was speaking to them. Um, often it was just a mobilizational um, 
you know, problem. Just, uh, you know, I have plenty of, of, of relatives that um, are broadly or anti-Republican, I think, knee-jerk, like a lot of, um, a lot of um, immigrants are in, in the U.S., but, you know, getting them registered, getting them to turn out, especially if you don't get yeah. the day off and the polls close and you have a million other things to do, you know, it becomes, uh, it's very, very difficult. It requires effort. So um, the Sanders campaign premised itself on the idea that there was a new constituency out there and they can be tapped into uh, irregular voters, semi-voters, um, a lot of them working class, a lot of them young. And it didn't work out. Um, it worked out in certain areas. Like I think that turnout among uh, Latino voters is really significant. Um, Nevada would be a great Nevada. Yep. Um, but overall, it didn't work out. I think it's much harder to do in a closed primary than it is to do in a general election. And I think in general, rather than trying to win over um, uh, a handful of Republican voters might be swayed in the suburbs, you know, just speaking to a message will actually turn out your base and maybe make it so that you can break even or get pretty close among um, white working class voters. You know, that's that's not even a revolutionary act. This is what Obama did in his two terms. And he was, he's hardly a radical, but it is different than the Clinton approach in, in, um, in 20, 2016. And yeah, that's, that's my, my general... Yeah, no, that's, that's a helpful point. There's a question that, that has emerged uh, in, in the chat, uh, which talks about the role of religion in uh, sustaining struggle through seemingly endless setbacks, uh, setting a tone of respect and support, uh, what other forces can provide that. Um, I'll take a, a stab at this and then would love for you to, to weigh in here as, as well. Um, I think there's something to be said for um, re religions, uh, potential role, and I, I keep saying potential because I think the multivalence, um, the differing varieties of religious experience to, to bring William James into the conversation are important to, to ground the conversation because there's never just one string uh, of religious tradition that, that we're talking about, even internal to a particular re religious tradition. And you, you mentioned Obama. Interestingly enough, uh, he was the one who spoke about how, you know, you can get uh, Jerry Falwell and you can get uh, Al Sharpton from the same uh, kind of Christian uh, tradition in some ways. But to this particular question, uh, I think there is something to be said for uh, ritual, for uh, transcendence, which uh, may come from uh, a sense of connecting with God, may come for others from uh, music, from nature, from a deep sense of play, uh, silent stillness, et cetera, uh, that, that definitely gets to uh, leader your, your, your question. Um, in terms of what other forces can provide that, I, I think it's important to, to note that, uh, you know, here in New York, there's an ethical culture society. Uh, there's a tradition of relating to one another uh, and regarding what it is to be human as Mm -hmm. just inherently sacred that I think is um, or special, however we might language that, that's important to acknowledge. I'm curious to, to hear how you might weigh in there in terms of what sustains folks through setbacks, right. labor oppression, et cetera. Well, well I, th I think regardless of, of, of um, whether we um, are, are uh, believers or not, I, I think the uh, socialist cause itself and our identification with the tradition and a, and a history and the multi-generational connection that that makes. I mean, I think we can, in fact, draw a direct line of continuity from our movement on the modern left to the abolitionist movement until before then, 
uh, Thomas Paine and others, and, and just many generations of people struggling, Eugene Debs and, and, and others struggling to make the world a better place. And we're living, I mean, it, it seems terrible every day, right? It seems like not a great, great world in many ways, but we're not living in the worst of all possible worlds. And the reason for that is because of generations of sacrifice and, and struggle. And that's why I think we need to honor um, those victories, the, the victories of the labor movement, the victories of the civil rights movement, the, the, the victories in recent, um, recent decades, um, and, not, and not just note our setbacks and defeats, but, but notes our, our, our victory, but, but feel this sort of um, continuity. And I, and I do think that often, pejoratively, um, socialism is compared by its detractors to a religion. Now, I do think Let's that there is something... There. I think that's the part worth, worth digging into a bit. Yeah, I think that actually, I feel like my conviction to socialism is basically religious in the sense that to me, at least at a moral and ethical level, an opposition to forms of domination and hierarchy, exploitation, however you want to put it, or even just plain bullying, right? Like, I, I think that's, that's one way to frame what socialists want. We don't want a world in which the mighty can bully the, the weak. You know, we want yep. uh, a, a, a world with that kind of um, equality. That's an ethical, you know, commitment. That's a moral uh, commitment. And that, yep. to me, is that not is falsifiable by the actions of the mistakes. It might be that it's a technical impossibility. You can convince me that my moral worldview, which is my moral worldview, is impossible to put into practice fully in the real world because of technical contradictions and problems or whatnot. Like, that at least, like, is an, is an argument. But whereas Marxism, for example, is an intellectual framework to understand the world, which we should um, embrace, I think, but we should also not be wedded to because it's, a, it's an intellectual framework to understand the world. If it no longer explains something about the world, then we should jettison the parts of it that are, are no longer useful. But I, I feel like the commitment, the moral and ethical commitment is a long-lasting thing. But, but the last thing I'll say is I, I actually have felt a very deep, um, kingship through the years, since the time when I was a teenager, I was politicized in the socialist movement with generations, and I was lucky enough to, to, to meet, um, you know, many older generations of socialists. Some of them have already uh, passed, passed away um, and feel this connection to our, our history and our sense of struggle. And that also helps us uh, see the bigger picture and not feel so so small. And also when it comes to our little petty sectarian rivalries, yep. if we feel like we're part of the same thing, then what difference does it make that we disagree on, on uh, obviously, I don't think we actually disagree, but, but we disagree on what to do in, a, in one election cycle or something like that if we're part of this broad, multi-generational, almost trans-historical movement. You know, when Marx had the little questionnaire, the little game where he had to list his favorite figure from antiquity, like, who did he write? He wrote Spartacus, you know, uh, Spartacus, you know. He, yeah. So he, obviously he thought himself as part of this um, this trans-historical uh, movement. So across across well, yeah. time. You know, I, I think that's an important point. There, there are a number of, of questions in, in the chat, which I'll uh, do my best to try to consolidate and synthesize into one. And then uh, just to kind of give you a, a, a prep, I want to uh, talk a bit about uh, Jacobin and, and how you all have covered religion, which I think is uh, in, a, in a pretty subtle way. Um, the synthesis of the questions, I think, is... Um, what more can be said at a 30,000 foot level beyond sometimes religion is a force for socialism and sometimes religion uh, is a force for regressive hierarchy propping up so on and so forth. I, I think 
one thing that, that I'd say there is, I think within um, various religious traditions, there are strains of, um, of praxis, of organizing, of reflection that I think are worth lifting up. I think of someone like Martin Buber, uh, whose work on utopia, whose uh, text I Am Thou is uh, pivotal in the long and rich strain of thinking about Jewish socialism. Uh, I think about Alice Walker, whose uh, poem on democratic socialist womanism brings together a distinct tradition of Black women's empowerment with talking about democratic socialism. There's, of course, the often quoted uh, liberation theology, uh, traditions of mm -hmm. Latin America, of Black American uh, thought. And there's a lot of rich synthesis um, by Buddhists on love and rage that can help us get towards, as you mentioned, uh, Bosker, uh, a world where there's not bullying by the mighty uh, mm -hmm. with respect to the weak. Uh, so just wanted to, to, to set that out for folks. So I think it's important to be able to go beyond saying, you know, uh, Moses was a leftist. Jesus was a leftist. Mm -hmm. Think again and looking at uh, the, the, the prophet Muhammad, who's you know more left than you might imagine. Th though it's true mm -hmm. that you can mobilize um, mm -hmm. origin stories and founders in multiple directions, I think understanding religious traditions as ways to answer perennial political questions is what I'm getting at. Questions of authority, questions right. of representation, distribution, and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you could definitely find these 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 examples, you know, in the in the Hebrew Bible and in, in, in Islam, you could find it like the Hebrew Bible's um, uh, kind of anger at those who rob the the poor ones of justice. Um, quote, quote the text, Master. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I think I think in in particular though, um, and, and I, my my fa own family backgrounds, um, you know, Hindu, so I'm kind of in, impartial in, in in these in these things. Uh, so I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll maybe focus too much on certain traditions because I'll just focus on what I know, to be honest. But I think in particular, since Buddhism emerges as a, as a revolt against the caste system uh, because of the very humble um, uh, origins and persecutions of, of early uh, Christianity, I, I think you know those in particular have have been. Um, you know, real sources of, of strength and it's been a really wide uh, tradition. So you have uh, someone like in, in the uh, in Canada, the Canadian Social Democrat, Tommy Douglas, uh, kind of uh, background as a, as a radical um, a Baptist. You have obviously the, the Protestant uh, social um, gospel. You have the diggers and the uh, levelers in England. You have Martin Luther King uh, Jr., uh, and then obviously, I think more in the contemporary uh, sense, I think a lot of the focus has been on the uh, Catholic um, tradition, uh, not just liberation theology, I think a much broader um, uh, strand of the, the um, Catholic tradition. So that's all, that's all there, right? And things of that sort, um, for instance. Yeah, and, and even like the, even when we think about the Irish um, uh, uh, national liberation tradition, you know, the, the starry plow in Ireland has um, Catholic uh, roots. It's, it's derived from, um, from Isaiah, that, that, um, that, that line, um, which, um, you know, is, uh, I think, the swords into, into plowshares um, uh, line. So, uh, and beyond that, I mean, uh, I'm not 
uh, obviously there's lots of contradictions in their actual uh, practice, but the uh, prime minister of the Australian Labor Party actually gave an incredible speech in the 40s, the light on the hill speech. Uh, and so when we think about that, that Reagan line, the shining city on a hill, uh, actually in many ways he was aping and perverting a really, really beautiful um, speech. I don't have it in front of me, but I, I recommend everyone read this light on the, on the hill um, uh, speech. And it's about, you know, um, you know, using religious imagery, but talking about how the job of labor, the job of the working class, isn't just to make more more money or just to improve standards of living. So that was really important. The uh, objective was kind of the betterment of of, of mankind in kind of a broader, yeah. uh, more philosophical sense. So the so obviously we could sit here all day and list various examples of religion being employed in these ways. What I would distinguish though is, is, is a couple things. I think the most mild, most important thing that we establish at a minimum is that I'm very glad that there's not really a big trend of DSA that is particularly, um, uh, I think I imagine a large chunk of DSA is atheistic, but there's no large anti-theist strand. Um, in that I think that would be extremely alienating if we, if we had that. And within the left, I think we should separate between certain traditions we have within the left that are yeah. anti-clerical in the sense of going against hierarchies wherever they exist, including in and religious, the religious spheres. Um, obviously not all anti, some anti-clerical traditions are extremist and, and, and just as, just as destructive as, as, you know, fundamentalist, um, religious traditions, but broadly, I think there's an anti-clerical tradition that is also very, um, compatible with even, uh, with, with different forms of socialist thought. I think that's an important part. Uh, in other words, we can't just say, oh, there's a religious community that we have to respect because that's a organic community. Because as we know, within our families, within our communities, there are exploitative relationships, there are hierarchies, and we want politics to penetrate in there, uh, not to free people from above, but to give people exit options and, and whatever, whatever else. So, so I think yeah. we, should, we should recognize yeah, but, that, yeah. Let, let me happen there on, on that point. Um, I, I think a part of what you, you raise is the importance of forthright conversation um, about religion that subjects it to um, not being so tenderly held that it can't bear uh, ruthless criticism. And, and I think that's a gift of Marx. In the same uh, uh, critique of Hegel's philosophy on the right, where he not only says religion is the opiate of the people, society of persecution, so on and so forth, he talks about how uh, the criticism of religion, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, is kind of fundamental to all good social criticism generally, that in some ways that's a, a critical starting point. Um, and there's a way to read criticism as a kind of cynical act of despair where you're constantly kind of poking holes uh, because of ridicule and contempt. But there's also critique in the sense of a of running thread of argument, constantly trying to revise into better, more noble versions, and then also just conditions of freedom requirement that um, one can't just shield themselves in religious practice, particularly if it's harming others, if it's causing trauma, if it's um, aiding and abetting oppression and so forth. So I, I think you gestured towards something important there. I want to raise this, this, this question. Um, throughout the uh, 10 years that, that Jacobin has been in existence, uh, you all have published um, 
a fair amount of articles on everything from new atheism to um, how uh, fundamentalism across various religious traditions uh, has emerged, uh, certainly a good deal in between those poles. I'm, I'm wondering if you can say a bit about um, what you see as religion's role when it comes to crafting um, a public narrative for socialism to, to build a constituency for. What, is, right. what might that look like? Well, I think for one thing, uh, we haven't published a lot on on religion other than the kind of anti-anti-theism um, perspective with the, the critique of some of the, the new atheists and, and how their politics are, are are utilized and also historical pieces that talk about um, various um, um, strengths that people have drawn from religion, like a lot of, just by nature of having a lot of uh, Latin American, a lot of Irish contributors, I think disproportionately a lot of, uh, many of the articles have been written on um, on the uh, role of um, certain varieties of liberation theology and other parts of Catholic tradition. Obviously, we publish a few things every year on, on uh, Oscar uh, Romero and, and, and others, of course. Um, but, but there's, there's been now, a few. There's been yeah. some on, you know, Cornell. There's been some on mm-hmm. a number of different... Um, yeah, definitely. Well, well I, 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 let, let me make two, two clear points. Uh, one is that uh, I think part of why the left draws on um, the religious tradition is that, in fact... Religion and the church has been a training ground historically for mass politics within working class movements. So many of our leaders uh, came, they learned how to speak because they learned how to speak in a church or other religious institutions. They, they, so I, I think there was a certain style of, of engagement and debate um, in many different um, uh, traditions, but especially you know, the, the Jewish and, and, and Christian uh, ones in the, in the U.S., uh, that came out of this organic um, uh, connection. So I think I think that's important. The other thing that I'll that I'll, I'll I'll point out is that we're living in an age right now where there's the hollowing out of every single civic institution. Everything is hollowed out. Um, church church attendance is down and union attendance is down. And yes, historically unions have obviously benefited the left. Then in modern times, unfortunately, um, at least the uh, white evangelical, or di- not even white, they're multiracial, but disproportionately white evangelical churches, you know, have, have benefited um, the the right um, in modern times, of course. And, you know, and, and throughout the, the Civil War in that period, you know, that, that those traditions were great forces of, of uh, emancipation mm-hmm. and progress. Slightly uh, different picture. Um, but, but, but in other words, if one of the problems with the left today in the United States, one of the problems that we're meant to overcome with DSA is the fact that we don't have this deep, rootedness in working class communities, then I think we need to place a special emphasis on on people who are engaged in one of the last institutions in civil society that are still mobilizing and bringing people together and have the potential to bring people together across races, of, of course, national origin or whatnot. So I think there's a particular way in which if DSA has a bigger proportion of its members who are um, uh, doing regular um, in, in regular church church yeah. attendance, it'll be a good sign. It'll be a good sign that we're we're more working class. Uh, I, I'm not saying entryism, right? I'm not. Uh, I'm I'm not. I'm not a. Uh, you know, I go to um, uh, a temple or do a puja when my mom asks. You know, but I, I'm not a, a believer. You know, I'm not going to um, uh, at least in that way. I'm not going to uh, you know <laughs> do an, an entryist thing at a yeah. at a church. But I'm not suggesting I, I, that. I but it'll be a good that- sign. Yeah. 
Yeah, I hear the point you're saying. I, I take your point to be, if it's the case that you have um, a hollowing out of civil society, which I think a lot of empirical sociological research bears out, and you have, um, to some degree, across demographics, bucking that trend, religious participation uh, has not dropped quite as sharply as some of the other uh, decreased forms of association, whether it's voluntary organizations, unions, et cetera. Um, if we suppose, and I think rightly so, that there are some folks who are in temples, synagogues, mosques, uh, other kinds of religious assemblies uh, that have um, a desire to see a world um, where power imbalances of exploitation are not the norm, are not the order of the day, uh, then making that kind of bridge there uh, is um, important uh, because you, you see religion uh, showing up in the lives of working class, the interior lives, I, I might add, of working class folks in many of those uh, institutions. So I think that's an important point um, to make in terms of um, strategy. I, I don't think you have to be necessarily bashful about that point, but there's also a way to do it in, in a principled kind of way, if, if I mm -hmm. hear you, and kind of avoiding uh, the kind of entryism that, that you talk about. Um, Want to uh, go to a question and, and get get it up on on the table before us. Um, so Vincent has has rose for us a question about how um, one intersection of labor and faith uh, in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century uh, was unable to kind of separate religion and politics. Uh, so religion and politics kind of uh, collapsed, I think, is the claim into to propaganda. And so, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I read a, a good piece on, on Jacobin that talked about um, how you can write from a place of political commitment and kind of reimagining what is meant by propaganda. So the question on the table I, I, I put uh, that I'd love for you to touch a bit is, what does it mean to think about propaganda and articulating a distinct point of view in the world? Um, without being um, like a steamroller as you kind of exchange regions and engage in debate. I think that's at the heart of the question. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we have to allow for nuance and contradictions. So in other words, we don't want to be dogmatic to say there's only one reading of the world, there's only one reason reading of a religious text, right? I think yep. we, we strengthen our case uh, when we, we acknowledge doubt and, and contradictions and, 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 and ex explain um, these things um, uh, thoroughly. And I, I think the same goes for when we're engaging in religious um, um, circles, I mean, often just, I imagine people should just talk personally about what they think something means and, and, and why it speaks to them and, and why, why they, that also motivates them to maybe support something like Medicare for All. Um, and in general, um, like what I've, and many DSA members have learned after years of, of organizing that generally we know less about someone's situation than they do always we know less about someone uh, another person's situation than they know about their own situation so if you're engaging in a conversation with someone for the first time if you're organizing and trying to get someone to do something you should be spending most of that conversation asking people questions asking them what they think um and at the end of it they'll probably feel like they had a good conversation if they did most of the 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 talking right and and even if there were 
uh, disagreements. And uh, on the actual history, I actually don't know enough uh, to say. I, I would imagine that that um, well, I just do know that religious movements have been intertwined with political movements for a long time. Many of them have lasted for for a very long time. So uh, I, I think there's plenty of reasons to avoid um, using either intellectual thought or um, or religious thought as as in in very narrow uh, ways, um, just because it's not as effective. Um, um, yeah. And yeah. Bank shots and glancing blows are often better than, than direct ones. Excellent point. Um, would, would add there, because um, I think this is the other end, uh, you make a great point about allowing for nuance and contradiction, engaging in inquiry, raising questions, listening more than you talk. I, I think a part of what th this may be getting at, um, there is a bit of historiographical work to suggest that um, some religious folks who support the New Deal, for instance, um, could be seen as engaging in sloganeering rather than making a full board case for why um, you need some sort of regular, regulatory state to kind of provide public goods and programs, so on and so forth. So I, I think there's something to be said for not just leaning on a kind of smug self-assuredness that one's position is right, but listening to objections to a socialist case and making the argument in a kind of contextual sort of way. I think that's also connected to the propaganda question. Um, there's another uh, question I want to get on the table before we, we turn uh, in earnest to, to Q&A. Um, and that question is, you know, what might be the role of um, or as we think about intersections uh, between religion and socialism, what are the biggest challenges and opportunities for platforms that are targeting these specific audiences? And just to maybe flesh that out as a bit of background, uh, Buster. Um, so you have uh, groups like religious socialism, you have the bias, which is an outlet of the Institute for Christian Socialism. Um, I'll just name the, the Christian ones though. I'm sure there are a number of other um, and I think of Believers for Abolition, which is an Islamic group. Um, and you, you have these entities, basically podcasts and magazines, which are getting a hearing for socialism and are translating it to folks of faith. Um, what would you say um, are some of the potentially transferable lessons that, that Jacobin could represent, could give to some of these versioning efforts? Yeah, I mean, uh, I hate to give a really apolitical answer, but I think a lot of these questions are just technical ones. It doesn't really matter what your what your content is. So, in other words, um, there's a certain market for, um, let's say, um, uh, connecting Islam in the in the in the U.S. with with progressive causes. Uh, there's obviously long traditions of of, of doing so in the. Uh, in the United States, in the in the Black community, and 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 um, among um, um, you know Im immigrant groups, uh, uh, I know a lot of um, Bengali um, uh, leftists who are who are Muslims and and kind of cite and use their use their faith as as kind of a reason why they're why they're on the left. Uh, I, I think to reach those people, you just it's similar to to reaching the the target audience for something like like Jacobin. You know, it requires. Um, Figuring out how to how to connect with people, figuring out a, a business model to to make sure you're you're able to sustain a staff and 
and um, build subscriptions and donors and, and whatever else. So, so I, I actually, I think um, the biggest challenge is just the potential size of the, the market, if that makes sense. Um, because the left right now, like I said, our overriding problem is that we're not as embedded as we, as we should be. We're growing very wide. And we have a lot of people within, let's say, the tent of DSA, which is incredible. But we're a country of 330 million people. And often it's very um, difficult for us to uh, recruit in mass the way we used to be. It used to be that there was a huge union campaign in a city like Lowell. And within two years, the Wobblies would get tens, thousands of members, right? And there'd be thousands of people showing up to this political activity or, you know, uh, you would you would organize people not in ones and twos but in mass, and yep. and obviously religion played away. Right now we're seeing the breakdown of a lot of these things, and this sounds very apolitical. I keep talking about breakdown of civil society, breakdown a lot of these institutions. It's not apolitical for just this reason alone. The right does not need mobilized people, organized people in civil society. They could govern capitalism in the interest of capitalists with people not even turning out to vote, right? We're, we, to solve our collective pro action problem, need unions, need uh, people doing organizing in their, their churches and mosques and, and, and temples. Um, and, and like I said, I, I, I might be too modest. I think everyone on this chat is better equipped to answer this question than me. Um, but I think that in general, us looking at the amount of DSAers um, engaged in these these communities is going to be um, a um, barometer of our rootedness and a barometer of our success, um, rather than a shortcut to our success. If that makes sense, it, it does. What 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 I what I'd add there, and and hopefully you see this as a, as a friendly uh, addition. Um, I remember when, when Jackman was first getting off the ground that there were reading groups which served mm -hmm. as a space of connection, of community, of entry into socialism, into Marx, any number of other things. Um, and I think there's something to be said for um, reading circles mm -hmm. as a point of introduction, a point of association mm -hmm. uh, with other people so that uh, sometimes this is an unfair um, caricature of socialists, but it's not entirely unmoored from reality. Uh, there's a perception that sometimes socialists are more radical in their heads than they are in actual organizing and day-to-day -day, um, work uh, to disrupt capitalism. And so um, I think in terms of specifically to, to get at a um, particular question, folks looking to kind of creatively reroute um, their traditions in a counter hegemonic way to use Gramsci's sort of language. Um, I think reading circles are, are an excellent way to do that. Um, want to make sure that we, we tackle the, the other end of the question um, or of this conversation before we, we go to Q and A. So th this will be our, our, our last question and then we'll, we'll uh, swing it open for, um, I think we can do at least a good 15, 20 minutes of Q and A. Uh, so, so we've talked a lot about how religion can support socialist movements. We, we've talked about the kind of uh, exemplars which you can find in every religious tradition. We've talked a lot about uh, constituency-based reasons. Uh, we've talked about um, building outlets uh, which can learn perhaps from, from Jacobin and, and other ways of um, targeting specific uh, communities and, and demographics to kind of get the, the word out there and to evoke conversation want to deal now with the, the question of 
what kinds, um, how do we sort of uh, prevent, intervene in religion being a more corrosive force? And, and what I mean by that is, I think we have to take seriously, uh, and these questions are coming up in the chat, uh, I think at least two sorts of challenges. Uh, and I want to bring you in after I just kind of quickly stipulate them. I think the first challenge is a Pollyannish sentiment, sentimentality. And by that, I mean um, talking about um, building beloved community and airbrushing how toxic and thoroughgoing all the way down the contradictions of capitalism are. Uh, and so if, if the thought, as it sometimes is in the religious left, is that if you do enough prayer vigils, if you bear enough witness, uh, and Adolf Reed is good in making that kind of critique, that bearing witness will somehow be like a tipping point uh, in radicalizing people in and of itself, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to, say, organizing. So a kind of overemphasis on bearing witness among the religious stuff, I think, is one challenge. The other challenge of when religion may undermine rather than strengthen socialist movements is the the kind of packaging problem, uh, I'd, I'd put it, um, of talking about what makes socialism compelling uh, from an ethical or religious perspective, like in a one-liner. And I think you did that really well when you talked about living in a world where the mighty don't bully those who don't have the same kind of power. That, that's, that's quick. That's an easy mm -hmm. sort of um, distillation of how to see the world in a different perspective rather than a more, um, you know, Milton Friedman, Friedrich Hayek sort of way of looking at the world. So would love to hear your take on how to move beyond um, ethics and religious engagement with socialism as a kind of witness bearing only. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so obviously I, I agree with, with uh, Professor Reed on most things, uh, but I think in this case it's like, I don't think you could have enough uh, a witness bearing. You know, I think if you consider most the the arc of modern U.S. Uh, U.S. politics, I mean, uh, I think as a precondition for us to um, organizing, we have to speak about the the horrors that we 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 see. We have to prevent those horrors from being uh, normalized. Uh, and we have to levy our our, our critique of of um, the world as it as it is. Um, so we have to present that in addition to a vision of a better world. But more importantly, I think this is where the socialist part comes in. We need a way to get from here to there because I think a lot of people agree with us about what's unjust in the world, but they often think that, you know, it can't be any other way, right? I have to get mine, you know, you have to get yours, and, you know, this is just the way it is. It's unfortunate. So often people will justify a framework built on exploitation and built on this kind of a, a really insidious competition, but they would never treat their family members that way, right? They would never treat their friends that way. I think we really do value um, relationships that are, that are, um, that are deeper there. So, so I, 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 but I actually think that one, one is a necessary precondition of the other. And I think mm -hmm. many of the, the problems that we've seen is that in a lot of these religious traditions um, or, or kind of mainstream expressions of, of religion in, in recent years, is it's been not bearing witness, but justifying injustice or, or trying to solve it That's with personal yeah. charity, right? The, the you know, um, 
you need to get wealthy. And of course, when you're wealthy, you should, you should give back, you know, to the church, you give back to the less uh, fortunate, but not questioning the, the fundamental, um, uh, inequities. So obviously, you know, I, I, I uh, oh, and actually, um, Sarah noted in the, in the, the chat, you know, someone who I'm sure people have listened to her podcast and can, again, another person can speak, uh, much more eloquently than me on, on, on this issue. But obviously the, the Christian right does have really deep, and rooted um, institutions. I think we'll probably find that those will be in decline at some point um, as as well. But um, you know that that kind of business, big business, they've set up around around um, religion um, sure, is, is the, the existing structures and are very you know impossible to penetrate because it is you know it's backed by paid staffers and by whatever whatever else. But you know the reason why people are are attracted to it is 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 you know for the same reason that, that the rest of us are attracted to to religion and to these these you know criticisms but yeah i shouldn't overstate the the decline in in attendance and other things yeah the, um y'all y'all forgive me i want to i bet you can get um one more question on the table that i think comes at the the socialism in and then we'll, we'll we'll swing it open um in terms of the path to get from here to there um this is hopefully responsible oversimplification. Uh, there's one path which is what you might call the autonomous politics path, right? Which is mutual aid, worker cooperatives, um, a community land trust, socializing property, uh, but doing that independent of the state with the idea being that if you do enough of this, uh, maybe the state is kind of a junior partner to community controlled efforts. Uh, but maybe over time, this is kind of Eric Olin Wright's case, you can kind of gradually um, move towards uh, a more socialist world. The, the other case, um, and again, I'm intentionally kind of drawing polls, is more electoral, more state power oriented. Get socialists in office, every branch of, of government if you can, and then uh, move towards uh, what I believe you call in, in, in your book a kind of uh, confrontational social democracy or so, something along contentious social democracy, something along those lines. What, what's your, your take on the best right. path from a socialist standpoint um, to get to the world we want to see? Yeah, so it's a cop out to say do both. So I would say that they're both not completely Where do you place your emphasis? But yeah, emphasis on the latter. And and the reason is I think in the process of building these these our our parties, our movements, our, our struggles, we're gonna have to create a lot of these institutions. I mean, what is a strike fund other than, you know, is it is it not kind of a, a, a kind of member driven small at best small D democratic um, you know, mutual aid project? What are uh, a party school or a adult literacy class that a mass party would would have or, or other things you know it's mixing in politics with social service works but ultimately the state would crush any of our efforts and and the capitals would crush any of our efforts unless we can wield um the state unless we can wield scale um so capital always tries to dilute the scale of struggle to the most local and isolated uh, um, uh, struggles. I think traditionally the goal of socialists have been bigger in a unitary state. So let's just think about even the, the, the black freedom movement from the end of slavery to reconstruction uh, to uh, the new deal to uh, kind of our, our next reconstruction, the civil rights uh, uh, movement. Um, all this has been done with massive increases in state power and massive transformations of the U.S. state in a more democratic 
uh, direction. Um, and it obviously hasn't solved, you know, half of what, what needs to be solved, but, but it, it did happen at that, that level. But at the same time, there's mass movements. When you think about um, the abolitionist movement, and you think about the Civil War and Reconstruction, and you think about um, the Civil Rights Movement, you're thinking about the small d democratic actions of individuals, you're thinking about yeah, the role of, of, of churches among a million other, other groups acting, but they're acting to pressure and put into concert the state. So yes, the state does have a, uh, a class bias. I don't want to get into kind of these questions of, of state theory, but it is um, democratically responsive to, to, to a large degree. And, and I think that that kind of needs to be our emphasis. But of course, when it comes to what we should do in our personal lives or in our politics, like a lot of the, I think, impulse that makes people want to do politicized mutual aid is just the good impulse that makes people want to do charity. So I think yeah. we should make clear that we are against charity as the solution to social ills, but we're for charity just as part of uh, living a good and virtuous life. And, and in other words, there's a and, certain and which, form which of analysis. It's important, right? Exactly. Right. We care about structures, but, but there's also, you know, I think, I think our our own individual auth- autonomy and, and ethical decisions, and also how we treat and interact with each other, which, which I think is 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 really, um, you know, important and sometimes is underemphasized by um, by socialists. Excellent point. Uh, you know, I, I think about the Black Panther Party, which would often talk about. Uh, whose uh, free breakfast program started in the basement of, of, a, of a church, by, by the way, St. Augustine's Episcopal Church. Uh, but they talked about survival programs pending revolution. And so work on sickle cell anemia, cop watch programs, uh, school breakfast programs, which, as it turns out, uh, ultimately do get um, kind of scaled up through the state. Um, speak to this way to engage in charity and mutual aid work. Uh, and this is a, a practical way to kind of segue into q and I think that work comes easier for religious communities to do the mutual aid, to do the charity, to be in solidarity with striking workers, but to not stop there and to connect the love to the transformative justice work. Uh, so with that, would love to... Um, hear some some questions from folks. Uh, people have already begun to, to drop them in the chat. So just giving folks a heads up that for the next 15, uh, we'll uh, take some of these questions and then we'll kind of close out with some concluding words and a, and a kind of uh, call to, to action. Um, the first uh, question, I'm gonna kind of go in reverse order, uh, talks about how while civil, okay, you, you, you uh, address uh, Sarah's question there. Uh, another one here, um, as a democratic socialist, feminist mediator, I've witnessed an alarming amount of, uh, so, so I think that the question on the table here is, how do we deal with um, the, the kind of corruption and corrosion of associating together, betrayal, lying, ridicule, manipulation, right. dishonesty, even in the context of, of socialist um, work? Um, yeah, I mean that's a problem with 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 human beings, with hierarchies, and with organizations. Period. And again, I don't think even this is a problem that, that socialism can fully solve. I think it yep. can make things better and give people more exit options. But ultimately, um, 
I mean, this is why politics needs to be permanent, but also beyond that, this is why we need, it's no guarantee, but we need to to fight for accountability and and democracy and and transparency and all these these other things uh, to give us an option to solve these these problems. But um, in other words, uh, this the same thing uh, comes to to any hierarchy to any institution, and that's um, and that's not a reason to avoid um, these these organs of collective action, these these organs of, of faith or, or or whatnot. But it's something we always need to be. Uh, aware of, and I guess this slightly touches on what I was trying to distinguish before about the validity and necessity of called anti-clerical. It's a little bit antiquated. You call it just in general uh, movements uh, from within religious communities that combat uh, hierarchies within religious communities and fight to reform them. Because you know, I'll give I'll give a, a, a an, ex- an example. It's kind of a straw man ex- example, but. Um, you know, we saw some tensions, um, for example, uh, and some debates on the UK left between um, young left-wing um, 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 Muslims who were critical of some parts of the anti-war movement for uh, accepting the leadership of right-wing, um, uh, you know, community leaders that didn't have audiences. And it's a complicated argument because, one, those leaders were actually adamantly against the Iraq war and were mobilizing people to fight against a brutal war that killed thousands of people but also you know they saw it as a betrayal because you know they're engaging in this struggle and we're you know kind of creating this this mass front that's capitulating to this this hierarchy so i think those are the types of things we'll have to figure out on a on a political basis i tend towards just making sure that even though we're embracing um our religion in certain forms we're, we're embracing uh the the faithful and their their struggles we're always aware that you know a lot of these are uh, uh, institutions that are corrosive, that are connected with hierarchies, are connected with right-wing um, uh, politics uh, and, and other things that undermine people's lives in every single other sphere of life when they're not in that, um, that, that church. Yeah, I think it's an excellent point that, um, uh, and a double-sided point that um, corruption, lying, ridicule, and a number of the other things that were lifted up um, are lamentably part and parcel of uh, organizational, social, life, and um, their reoccurring existence is in no way an excuse to tolerate those things and not push against them by instituting practices, transparency, accountability, and, and, and all the rest that, that you mentioned. Um, there is a question which is on the table now, and I definitely want to encourage folks to continue submitting questions. Uh, as I'm looking at, at this, I see that there is... Um, a number of, of questions that we, we've moved through here. Um, so one um, question that is on the table talks about this. Is there a strand of socialism that says the world is unfixable, but we should engage in the struggle anyway? Um, a quick response I'll, I'll give them, then I want to bring you uh, Um I think um, I think this is a characterization that, that he'd probably accept. Derek Bell, um, the legal scholar who uh, in many ways is uh, a creative critical race theory, uh, has this idea of racial realism, which essentially uh, argues that uh, not just culturally, but some of the material dimensions of racism are so locked and embedded in um, American society that the degree to which we can make seismic changes 
uh, I don't know if he'd say unfixable, uh, but he'd say the prospects of um, a victory that's just around the corner are, are, are pretty slim. Uh, but his uh, counsel was to struggle on because of, in many ways, it, it kind of aligns with what you said earlier, a kind of witness bearing doing something because it's kind of inherently right. Uh, and I think his work faces in the bottom of the well um, and a number of other texts, I think, emerge from that kind of strand that uh, the struggle is its own reward, even as we want to win alongside and on behalf of, of working class folks. Any, anything you have there? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I want to live in a fixable world, to be honest, because that sounds like it. Because in other words, like, that's a very subjective thing. And it sounds like an authoritarian sort of world where you're saying that this is the end goal. And I think that's kind of a dangerous impulse, because one, it could justify any means to get there. And also, um, yeah, beyond that, like a lot of our problems, there's a human condition that is not that is not fixable, right? We, there's there's heartbreak. There's all sorts of of, of things that that might might exist, um, and social problems too that might exist. Even when we resolve um, our we solve our our immediate needs. So I think, in, in other words, if you think if your definition of unfixable is um, a world without poverty, a world where everyone has a chance to reach their potential, you know that's. Um, I think, in other words, that's a world we can achieve. That's that's a fixable world, even a world without uh, without without racism. I think that's that's going to take a long struggle and many generations of of work. But I do think it's a it's an achievable uh, world. But if you mean a, a world without, you know, there's certain forms of suffering that I think are just eternal. And also, again, that's what I got at the very beginning of the conversation when, when we were talking about, you know, that's that's why I think forms of religion and other forms of, of philosophy as well will be. Um, eternal and, and again, like I think we wouldn't necessarily want to live in a world without our human condition because it's you know, sorry, this is a totally uh, flat way to end the sentence, but you know it makes us human. No, I, I, I hear what you said. So um, th- I, there's a, a bit of, uh, of of pushback that I think is, is emerging in, in in the chat. Um, so want to hop in in response to your your question and then want to to lift up. Uh, a question that's here. I, I think there's a tension between having a sense of of urgency and momentum about trying to win um, particular things and kind of trying to extend the memory of mm-hmm. effective revolution. So, you know, we often talk about the American Revolution, French Revolution, uh, but for, forget or downplay uh, the Haitian Revolution, which was an effective overthrow uh, and pushback against uh, the French uh, Empire, set up of an entirely different state. Uh, generally, um, over the long run, we might make some quibbles here and there, but a successful revolution in a near-term case, we could say. Um, but all of the social problems of Haitian society, for any number of reasons, of course, were not solved. So, so, so there's some tension, I think, between this particular social evil is abolished that mm-hmm. keeps people in the game uh, and that we want to see, and there is more to be done. And I, and I frame it appealing to the Haitian Revolution because there's a question from, from Max in the chat that says, doesn't saying the there always will be problems because we're human isn't that an excuse for essentially not adopting a course towards revolution that that substantial structural transformation might be 
another way to, to put that point. Yeah, I mean, I think it, 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 I, th- I think it could be, uh, but it also could be a, you know, or, or, or also, um, on, on the other hand, it, it could be uh, still striving to make change and to make revolution because, again, the Asian revolution was, uh, did not create a perfect society, but also eliminated a slave society. So, you know, that's, that's, that's imperfect uh, uh, progress, but it's still a major um, uh, progress. But I think it's best to assume that, that um, all our contradictions won't be resolved in one simple blow. And then for us to figure out what are the institutions that will carry forward democratic struggle uh, even, quote unquote, after the revolution, however you want to define that. So the revolution might be the victory of a Salvador Ande type, you know, government, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, you maintain ways to keep the party alive uh, for the second generation um, in power to keep the transformations going. It, it could be, um, you know, this or, or, or that. But um, I think it's very a deeply held idea within the DSA tradition in particular, the, the mm-hmm. democratic socialist tradition of, of Harrington and Howe and, 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 and many, many others, that um, this idea of, um, the, I think Joe Swartz put it this way in his, his first book, the permanence of the political. Um, and, I, yeah. and I think that's, that's a, an, an important, important idea. I, I want to underscore that point and, and try to make two quick points as I'm encouraging folks to continue to to hop in uh, with the, the questions in the chat and, and, and be, be provocative. Uh, provocative questions are, are always good. Um, I think um, your point, Bosker, about uh, supporting institutions of democratic struggle that can kind of continue the permits of the political is a helpful point to share. Because I think there's a bit of romanticism and voluntarism on the left that doesn't always appreciate the role of institutions as important and essential to building an egalitarian society. And what I mean by that is is this. Um, I think sometimes there is, for instance, um, an over eagerness, not always, but sometimes to celebrate people flooding the streets as an inherently good thing that will yield material results in the long run. I think there are inherent cultural benefits and potentially inherent materialist benefits, but not necessarily so. And of course, we could make a similar sort of pushback against institutions, but, but the distinction, and I think it's one that you appeal to in talking about state power, is that the state has a way of consolidating whatever gains may be secure, uh, even as we have to push back against its excesses, police violence, mass incarceration, um, things of that sort. Uh, And I think Michael Walzer uh, is someone in the democratic socialist Mm -hmm. tradition who I think moves, uh, who helped get Descent Magazine off the ground, uh, moves in between a kind of Jewish tradition of socialism uh, as well as talking about political theory in accessible ways. I, I commend Spears, Spears of Justice mm-hmm. uh, and Exodus and Revolution, particularly for you in, in the chat, Max. You, you're pushing the question of revolution. I think uh, Walzer is clear and compelling on some of the religious as well as political challenges of, of, re- of revolution. Um, Bosco, were you about to hop in? And no, no, no. I think, I think that was well, well put. Okay. Uh, any final uh, questions before we we close out? Um, 
All right. Um, by the way, somebody did ask about This Life, that book by Martin uh, Hagelin. Uh, I, I my, yeah, my, 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 my fiance is reading it, uh, now or was reading it. Uh, she's, she's studying for the bar exam now. So she's hasn't been reading anything besides for that for a few months. But, um, so I plan on reading it. I've read a few interviews with him. It definitely seems like a very compelling, uh, book, uh, about, you know, ethics and these other really important questions, uh, by, by Marxist. So I, I imagine it'll be of interest to people, but I haven't, uh, I've listened to an interview with him. I haven't read it yet. Mm. I, I think it's, um, I haven't yet read the text out. So maybe that's a, a, a reading uh, club piece uh, to, to look into. Uh, a, a part of, uh, just to translate quickly for folks, uh, this life, um, at least if uh, this is a dangerous uh, way to proceed, but if reviews uh, are to be believed, makes a um, a nuanced and compelling case, uh, a compelling moral case, I, I would even argue, for uh, democratic socialism that argues that this life should be the focus and that a focus on whatever may happen in the life to come, um, while that may offer some solace and consolation, could potentially be a distraction from doing the work of organizing and movement building that needs to take place. Um, again, ha haven't read the text, but that is the um, review that uh, I believe Descent Magazine ran, uh, or Boston, Boston Review, one of those, those mm -hmm. two outlets. Ran. Even if uh, what I've said is off base, I think it's important um, and ethical to let everyone make their case in their own terms and to take it seriously. Uh, so I may have gotten the basic case wrong, but I think that's an important part um, of the conversation to, to hear. Um, want to um, lift up one more uh, particular uh, question, which I think um, cuts out a bit wider than this particular conversation, but th there's a question uh, on the table about um, the relationship between uh, socialism and communism, which I think is is on the table, um, and would just briefly say there, um, I think a, a part of um, the nuance and complexity that I lift up is that you have folks who um, whose journey is complex. I think of uh, of Bayard Rustin, who over the course of his life um, um, models. Uh, a deep Quaker piety, uh, who's a communist, who's a uh, deep socialist, who uh, was um, marginalized in ways he should not have been uh, due to being uh, um, queer. Um, and and, and I, I, I say it in the context of the time because I, I think he was he was pillory and, de and dehumanized by folks, uh, even including folks like King. Uh, because of, of his sexual. And I think we have to be honest uh, about that with Rustin. But I lift him up in this context because he embodied a kind of communist as well as socialist kind of fluidity that I think is important uh, to lift up. Uh, so just wanted to, to get that on the table. I uh, want to turn now to just some kind of concluding words and uh, calls to action. Uh, the first is uh, thank you all so much for, uh, for joining us. Um, know there were a number of things taking place uh, within uh, DSA this evening and I uh, really appreciate folks um, uh, hanging uh, with us tonight. Uh, the first is we're in the midst of a recruitment drive, uh, DSA 100K, 
Uh, so want to invite folks to uh, invite your, your, your sister, your brother, your cousin, auntie, uncle, all them uh, to join uh, DSA. Um, organization and association helps to um, deepen the impact that we can have in um, dislodging capitalism and moving towards socialism. So I uh, definitely want to uh, encourage folks to, to join uh, DSA. Um, Bosco, want, want to turn it to you. Uh, please uh, tell folks about your, your, your excellent book, which is in paperback, I believe now, The Socialist Manifesto, um, and anything else you want to say to help close us out? Uh, well, first of all, just thank you for the uh, for the invitation. It's a pleasure uh, talking to you. Uh, thanks to Lawrence and, and Maxine and everyone else um, involved in making the event happen. Uh, it was a nice conversation because it was outside my usual um, uh, comfort zone, uh, for sure. So, uh, you know, I felt a bit embarrassed even in the, the chat because I, I recognize so many names that I know so many people here uh, could, you know, have a lot of uh, uh, thoughts on the on the on the issue and, and have, uh, again, like uh, are much more eloquent on it than than uh, myself. Uh, I guess the final takeaway is just we need to be really excited about what DSA is and where we've come over the past um, uh, decade. DSA has gone from a uh, relatively stagnant organization of around 5,000 or so people uh, to one that's on the cusp of, of getting to 100,000 uh, members. Uh, but at the same time, um, the, the thing that I always remind myself is when you're in a small group and you go from, you know, 5,000 to 25,000, 50,000, 100,000, sometimes you just think that the trajectory will just be up and up and up and up. And a lot of our energy becomes about the group and the politics and dynamics and thought within the group. And I think by engaging in, uh, with communities of, of, of faith, by engaging in broader working class um, um, struggles and just being aware of how weak and fragmented and not, not rooted still um, the, the movement is, uh, I, I think we could, we could figure out how to, how to actually sustain this, this growth and how to actually be a uh, very different organization with a very different type of, um, of vernacular. You know, I think of DSA as often a great organization that's keeping the seat warm for a set of mass democratic ideas that, that will one day soon belong to uh, you know, a real, uh, much even larger uh, mass of, of, of people. So uh, I really applaud your efforts and everyone else um, here. And, and you know, I hope to play a small part as well. And yeah. Wonderful, you're, you're playing a, a phenomenal part and thank you for your work. I also appreciate you. Um, uh, stretching uh, outside what may be uh, your, your traditional space of discourse to have the conversation. And I'd be remiss if I didn't thank uh, Lawrence, Maxine, and Abhay for um, making this uh, a possibility uh, as well for all of your um, respective leadership um, in this work. Uh, folks, have a great night, and uh, we will reconvene uh, next month in October for our next uh, conversation series on religion and socialism. Take care, everyone. Have a good evening. Take care. This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. This episode was produced by Jeremy McMahon with intro music by Party Dark. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religiousSocialism.org. If you liked what you've heard, please consider supporting us on Patreon.